I am glad you all are here tonight. Um, this is one of those talks, for whatever reason, I'm very, I'm very excited about it, which usually means one of two things happen. Either, either no one shows up that week, uh, or like there's like a, 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 an unusual grouping of people, and this, this doesn't feel like the normal crowd for some reason, and, and so I feel like we're supposed to talk about this tonight, as if, and that may weird you out, but I, I, I believe that. Um, and what we're going to talk about tonight really is, uh, I'll end up running with an image that, that we've used before, and kind of a, a, you'll see it on the whiteboard in a minute, but it's very core to kind of who we are as people, and what uh, even arguably makes us a little weird, uh, in good ways, I think, but makes us weird. And we're, uh, we're in the book of Ephesians. We're taking the lectionary passages going through the book of Ephesians. We started last week in chapter 1. And if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember. If not, you can find it on podcast or the video on Facebook. Um, but we spent our time talking about um, the good news of being chosen. Right? In the first chapter of Ephesians, uh, there's a lot of language about God's grace, about God having chosen us, God having adopted us into the family. That it wasn't anything that we did, it wasn't that we were likable enough or we achieved any certain thing. God just chose us because God is good and God is loving and God wanted to choose us. And we talked also about how that doesn't mean, depending on what kind of uh, church history you have, uh, sometimes what's married to that idea of being chosen is the idea that you are worthless, right? Uh, that you have no worth whatsoever, and so what makes God good and loving is that he chose us when we have exactly zero worth. I, I'm not from that school of thought. I don't believe that. Um, I do believe that it was grace. I don't believe we've achieved anything with God. I don't believe that we've done anything to make us uh, more lovable by God. I don't think you can do anything to make God love you more or less. I think we are chosen doesn't mean, and again, I, I don't need that I'm garbage theology with it. It's just good news to be chosen. It's nice to be chosen. And because we are chosen and we've been adopted into the family of the creator of all things, that means that we are in this world, every one of us, no matter what you may think of yourself, you were in this world with a purpose and an identity rooted in God's unconditional love for you. And I think that you can argue that the rest of the book of Ephesians, we're actually going to spend several weeks in it, actually way more than I thought the lectionary would spend in the book, uh, and I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, I think the rest of the book is kind of an unpacking of the repercussions of this grace, of this chosenness, right? Because I truly believe that if we know and we accept and really uh, embody the idea that we're chosen, loved, forgiven, all without condition, it changes everything. It changes our relationship to God, how we see and understand God. It changes our relationships with each other. And that's what uh, Ephesians begins to unpack. And what the writer starts with uh, in, in Ephesians 2, as, as there's this unpacking of the repercussions here, is what the nature of kind of community in our relationships with each other, how they are affected by this. And in fact, where we'll start tonight, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 4 through 22, and I'll read those again, although not in nearly as good a voice as Woody did. Um, you'll see that it starts again with this idea of grace and then moves into some of the repercussions for us as people. And so I want to uh, read through this, and then we'll get to talking about how this looks. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verses 4 through 22. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. 
And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. The salvation is God's gift. It is not something you possessed. It's not something you did or can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. So remember that once you were Gentiles. Gentiles is a shorthand for anyone who's not Jewish in, the, in, in this text. Uh, remember, you were once were Gentiles by physical descent who were called uncircumcised by Jews who are physically circumcised. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's, uh, God's promise. In this world, you had no hope and no God, but now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who were once so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that we could create, so he could create one new person out of two groups, making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. When he came, he announced the good news of peace to you who were far away from God and to those who were near. We both have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. So now you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you belong to God's household. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him, and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. I just read that through the Common English Translation, which is a newer translation that came out, and I like to switch translations every now and again, because it always helps me kind of look at it differently, so that may sound a little foreign if you're very familiar with this uh, passage. But the author here uh, is insistent on the fact that God's chosenness, right, God's choosing us, God's grace and God's mercy has called all people closer to him and to each other. And it's closer to each other is that part that I want to talk about tonight. Because the first implication of being chosen in grace is the removal of those things that we use to divide ourselves. The first implication is the removal of those things we use to divide ourselves. Grace destroys the framework of us and them. I no longer have any ground to stand on to separate myself from anyone else. I have nothing to brag about. It's not because of me. It's grace. In this particular case, it's true of the Jews and non-Jews in the early Christian church. And that's kind of the specific thing that's being addressed here. But this is a much larger implication than just those people at that time. Now, uh, many years ago, in fact, right when we were beginning the church, uh, I saw this illustration that really flipped on a light switch for me. And I would love to attribute it, but I can't remember where I saw it. So if you happen to go, hey, wait, didn't so-and-so, professor, whatever, talk about this? Feel free to tell me and I'll attribute. I'm not trying to take credit for it. I did not come up with it. But it, um, it just really helped me make some sense of things. And I've used it here before, but it's been a while. And I think it illustrates so much of how I know I understand church and community and grace. And I hope it will go a long ways towards kind of explaining uh, why we do things the way we do and why we're a little bit strange. Um, and, and I'm going to use a whiteboard. And I got terrible handwriting. But I want you to know that on the other side of this whiteboard, I don't want to spoil it ahead of time. Um, I drew some things. And I worked very hard on them. And uh, I'm not a very artistic person, 
but I want, I want, I want you to appreciate uh, the little bit of beauty I, I bring to the room in this, because I worked really hard on this art, so I'm going to go ahead and, and reveal it to you now. I know it's life-changing, but I, I do want you to know, I drew this freehand, and that's a pretty good circle for freehand. Uh, because I was that kid in art class where, like, if you're supposed to cut out a circle, it kind of just kept going and turned into, like, a long pigtail because I could never break it out. I'm not very artistic. So this is, this is literally maybe the best thing I've ever This may be the peak of my artistic expression in my life. And so uh, I want you to appreciate that. Um, so what I want to talk to you about is um, this theory about how we as humans tend to organize ourselves, right? And so there's this theory that's out there, and it talks about social sets, and it, it can be, you can think as big or as small as you want about this. You can get the silly examples or you can get big grand examples. But it's basically about how we tend to gather a crowd. How we uh, associate with other people, right? They're social sets. And so uh, they talk about there being two basic types of social sets. And when I first heard this, it really did kind of give me an image to hold on to that I use a lot and I refer to a lot. And so I want to kind of use it tonight. The first social set that they talk about, the first way and the most common way that people organize themselves are what, through what they call a bounded set. And I had to write that slowly for about three minutes to make it legible, so everything else is probably not going to look like that. But bounded social sets are what most, most any group that you are a part of or I'm a part of or that we've made up are bounded sets. In other words, they are groups that are identified by their relationship to some kind of established boundary, right? So uh, basically, the way, the way a social set like this works is that there are those that are in the club and there are those that are out of the club, okay? Now, they may be just out of the club or they may be way out of the club, but it's a bounded set, Right? We have established some way of establishing, we've established some way of knowing who's in and who's out. And you can go through all kinds of, uh, you know, examples for this. So it can be something as simple as um, uh, Mississippi State fans. We've got some Mississippi State fans in here. So there's a certain kind of boundaries that are kind of established whether or not you're a Mississippi State fan. Do you have uh, an inordinate amount of maroon in your house? Do you actually like visiting Starkville, where no one else has ever gone on purpose. Uh, now, uh, you know, have, you, have you developed, somehow developed the physical capacity to not be annoyed by a cowbell, which is superhuman, and I give all kinds of credit to fans who go to those games, because I can't even like, leave the volume on on the TV. It's amazing, but you know, they've somehow managed to do that. Do they, you know, is there, do they know the chant, or do they go to the school there? So there's all these kind of things, all these points on the boundaries, right? And someone either is a Mississippi State fan or they're not, based on whether or not they meet those, those criteria. Um, and I, I'm tempted to ask you to throw something else out, but I'm afraid I'd end up offending people by establishing what their boundaries are. But um, if uh, any, anything, anything you want to think about, there's certain sets that make up the boundaries, right? If, um, if, uh, if you want to rock right now and you're not internationally known, but you're known throughout the microphone and sometimes you get stupid and maybe outraged, you're in the bounded set of being Rob Bass. Does that make sense? Anyone my age? Okay, three of you. The rest of you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, here's a good one. I actually need to write this one down. Let's, um, I would say that we right now, although it's in flux and it's being argued over, um, political parties, right? 
there are definite boundaries to it. Um, you know, how do you how do you look at taxes? How do you look at social programs? How do you look at you know, da, 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 whatever the things are? I don't have to fill in the blanks. You know what they are. Now, these aren't always fixed forever. In fact, for us in this country, politically, I would say both of our parties, while they're both bounded sets, are kind of arguing over the boundaries right now, right? There, there are people within this circle that are trying to say, no, 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 this, this is, the boundaries over here too. You need to say yes to this. You need to feel okay about this. Or, and there's kind of these arguments over the boundaries. But, uh, so for instance, if, if, if you're part of the Republican Party, there's even a name. If you say you're Republican, but you fall outside of here, they call it a rhino, right? A Republican in name only. And what that means is, you may say you're this, but we all know you don't fit. We all know that you've, you, you're outside the bounds of what qualifies you to be a part of this group. Um, so the political parties work that way. Um, I would tell you that I think that the majority, I shouldn't say the majority, I'll just tell you my experience. Church as I grew up in was a very bounded set, right? Now I grew up in a tradition, um, for us, uh, there were a few things that really kind of made this circle. So there was the ob big obvious things that were like the, uh, the ethical stuff we always talked about, right? You don't, uh, for us you don't, uh, for us you didn't drink. We didn't drink beer. Wine was okay, but you, you didn't drink beer for some reason. Uh, you didn't cuss. You didn't, um, you know, uh, sleep with anyone outside of marriage. You didn't, uh, you know, hang out with people that did any of those things. Um, we, uh, we were from a tradition that had, we were very big on doctrine, like you had to have the correct doctrine. For us, there was literally five points, and we talked about them all the time, and we kind of drove those home, and they were a big deal. Like you would get a sit-down from the pastor if you said or taught or did something that didn't fit those five points. So we had these five points, and we knew who was in and who was out. We knew who we were, and we knew who they were. And we knew that they were supposed to be us. And the worst thing that could happen was one of us would do what we call backsliding, and we end up out here someplace, right? Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe one, of, one of the points of doctrine we begin to question, or maybe we, uh, you know, uh, drank a beer at a game or, and someone saw us. Because that was a big thing. It wasn't that you couldn't drink. It just weren't allowed to, no one was allowed to see you drink. That was the, that was the important thing. In my church growing up, I think everyone had secret stashes at their house. No one admitted it in front of each other. And we had these boundaries, right? And for us, in my church growing up, most of the, like, training I got, if you want to call it that, was how to man the boundaries. Um, when someone says this idea, and it's out here, Here's how you defend against it to make sure it doesn't infiltrate us, right? Uh, if, uh, if, if someone doesn't believe what we believe, here's how you argue into it. If someone questions this thing, here's how you, I mean, it was, we were defensive imposter. We called it defending the faith. We learned apologetics and we learned uh, our theology. We did all these things so that we could defend the faith because here's one thing that we knew for sure, and that is they were coming to get us. We were correct. We were the closest to God. We had it figured out. We had the answers. We were doing what we were supposed to do. And the world was out to get us in some way. And you know, we had that kind of complex. And so we minded the boundaries. Uh, and I can see some of you nodding to indicate that you have church experience that's at least a little bit like that or can understand it, right? 
So, it, so if you get to the current situation that you have here in Ephesians, it's a Jewish Gentile or Jewish Greek, depending on the translation. It's a Jewish Greek problem. You have those that are inside the circle, which are uh, the Jews, right? And they've got thousands of years of tradition. They've got the, uh, the Torah. They've got uh, the laws. They've got the, uh, the expounding that has happened on the laws. And they've got things that establish who they are. The one that's mentioned is circumcision. So you've got circumcision up here. That's one of the ways that you know if you're in or out, right? And uh, it's, a, it's a tough barrier for entry, I'll go ahead and say. Uh, no, I'm not sure I'd want to sign up. Uh, but, and, but you have all kinds of things beyond that. You see constantly Jesus running into this in his life, right? So um, they, they pick grain on the Sabbath and eat it, and they get in trouble because there's certain Sabbath laws. You don't do this kind of work on the Sabbath. That's not what you do. You're not a part of us if you do that, right? There's uh, people that he, you know, he reaches out and touches the leper that makes him ritually unclean. He, whatever the thing is, he's constantly running up against these boundaries, right? Uh, Jesus is located in this circle, uh, but he does not really care for the boundaries that surround it, right? And so you have the Jews and the Gentiles. And what you have in the Jewish tradition is the same thing you have in most of our traditions. Maybe it's what hap- is happening with us politically now or whatever, but the longer time goes on, people tend to not be satisfied with the boundaries there, and they tend to keep drawing bigger circles around it, right? So by the time you get to uh, Jesus' time, and you hear him talk about uh, you tithe, a tenth of your mint and all this kind of stuff. It's like they got so minuscule or something. It's not just give away 10%. It's take all your spices and divide out the 10%. And that's, that's what makes you good at religion. And, uh, you know, they, they had how, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath before it was work. It was like 1,500 or something like that, right? So you can, like, put food 15, you know, 1,450 feet away uh, to eat and, and put it on something. And then you could walk to it and eat, but you can't go... 1,505 feet, or you've worked that day, and now you've violated the law. And, and then you find all kinds of ways to try and not violate the law. You, uh, what's it called, a Shabbos Goyim, where you find someone who's not, a, not, not Jewish who can do work for you on the Sabbath, right? So that way I'm not violating it. They're violating it. They're out there anyways. Who cares, right? And so you kind of have this way of doing things. And this is, not a, this is not a Jewish thing. This is a people thing, and this is a, uh, you know, Christianity thing a lot of the times as well. And so you have these bounded sets. Is that making sense, like kind of this, this whole kind of image here? So you have these bounded sets. And uh, it's, it's who's in and who's out. And again, most of, most of the social sets we're a part of, whether they're silly or they're the most important thing to us, function like this. And I would bet every person in this room has been on the right side and the wrong side of one of these social sets. Um, at some point, you've been the person who's going, mm-mm, you're not a part of our group. And at some point, you've been the person that thought you were a part of a group and found out you weren't for whatever reason, right? So we've all kind of come in on, on both sides of that. So into this idea, into this situation is where the writer of Ephesians is talking about the implications of grace, right? With God's grace, with the idea that I've done nothing uh, to warrant being in or out, I have no ground to stand on in and of myself anymore. Because of God's grace, because of the fact that we are chosen uh, and, and that God chooses us not because of our relationship to the rules or how well we're doing on all this, but because God chooses, then this scripture argues that it says very specifically, you who are far away were brought near. Right? 
says that he broke down the barrier, that Jews and Gentiles are one now, that one person, one new person was made out of the two, that Jesus has reconciled them, canceled the rules, right? And so the idea is that when you have grace, and I hate to do this because this is a really good freehand circle, but when you have grace, the boundaries get erased, Whoever was in and whoever was out are the same thing, right? And, we, and intuitively, I think we know this. We talk about God's love being unconditional. There can't be, you can't have the circle in unconditionality, right? The circle is a condition. And so in, in Ephesians here, we're talking about the idea that all the, the can, there's a canceling of the rules, the reconciling of the people, the breaking down of the barriers. And this is littered throughout Christ's teaching. Christ is constantly ruining these things. The last are first and the first are last. Well, how are we supposed to designate between these two poles now if the last are first and the first are last, right? The enemies are those we're called to love. Uh, the good Samaritan, those two things shouldn't have gone together. They should have been separated out, right? You, Jesus is constantly working this out in his teachings and in, his, in the way he walked around the world and what he did. Grace destroys bounded communities, it destroys bounded social sets. So what does it replace it with? The other type of social set there is, you have bounded social sets, and then you have what they call um, a centered social set. A centered community. This is a social set that has no boundaries. Everything is just in relation to the center. Right? So... Uh, in a centered, I'm not going to try and write centered because my handwriting is terrible, but in a centered community, it doesn't matter if you're here or here or here or here or here or where you are. We aren't the center and we exist in relation to it. Right? A centered community is a social set with no boundaries. Everything relates to the center. And in this case, uh, in Christian theology, a center would be the, that's the shorthand for Christ. The center would be Christ. And the Bible says things. So this starts to make sense. This is a good image for me when I start to think about things the scripture says, like, uh, like Christ begins to draw all things to himself. Whether you're near or far, you exist in relationship to the center, not in relationship to the boundaries or the rules that some group has made up. There is no more in or out. There's only our common relationship to the center. And this changes how we understand ourselves. It changes understand, uh, the way we understand our relationships to each other. It changes the way we understand our relationship to God. The center. If you want to borrow Ephesians language here, you could call it the cornerstone if you want. That thing that holds it all together. Now just by itself, isn't this kind of a breath of fresh air? I don't know about you, but I would love to have some more centered sets in my life. It'd be nice to have more communities that were based on something like this, right? I would argue, again, I'm not, I'm not a political scientist, but I would argue that if we could get back to this, our politics would actually maybe do something. <laughs> Instead, we got these two separate circles that just whack into each other all day long and nothing happens. 
I mean, ideally, right, we should have like our constitution and those kind of things should be the centering thing and whether you're kind of more conservative, or you're more liberal, or you're more whatever, we all exist in relationship to it and we're trying to make these ideals happen. That should be the way politics would work. But instead, we've got what we've got. I think this absolutely changes the way we view uh, church and our relationship with one another. If you're a person of faith, you are claiming that you have decided to live your life centered on this thing. Centered on Christ. And that's why we can say things like, um, everybody is welcome, and mean it. This absolutely changes the way we look at things. When you enter into this room or another church or anywhere out there in the world, there is no more dividing line. There is no us and them. There is only a constant reorientation towards the center. The biblical word for turning from one thing and reorienting, reorienting yourselves towards another is repentance. I know that word gets, and depending on what church you grew up in, you may have been just beat over the head with that word. But all repentance means is turning from one thing to another. And I would argue that if this is the way you have uh, chosen to set up your life, all of life is an act of repentance, constant repentance. Because I'm always turning back and reorienting myself towards the center. My entire journey of faith, what I could say to you right now is that, you know, here's where I am today in my repentance. And that would be a correct use of that term, right? We are just constantly pointing ourselves back towards the center and maybe, hopefully, by the way we live and the way we love and the way we uh, interact with people in this world, helping others do the same. In fact, if this is the way it's supposed to be, and I believe it is, spending any time on the boundaries is, is the biblical word for that is idolatry because it's turning people's attention away from the center and towards something else altogether. We are reorienting ourselves and others towards the center. I am not trying to get anyone in the club, and I'm not trying to get anyone kicked out. It's not my job. It's not who we are. I am trying to center myself on the God of the universe and bring attention to that God for others as well. If we go with this, it changes everything. We've tried to organize ourselves around this principle. And it has completely changed the way we organize ourselves as a church, what we spend our money on, what we spend our time on, what we say yes to, what we say no to. The extent to which we are doing this at all the way we should be is part of what I blame on us being so weird. And we are weird. There are some people that still think we're a cult. It's probably the name. It doesn't help, let's be honest. But understand that when Ephesians talks about what these implications are for us and the way we relate to each other, the erasing of those lines, the, the, the removing of the us versus them, this is not a side project of the gospel. It's not a side project of Jesus' work. This is at the very center of what it means. This is fundamental to what God is calling us to. 
Christ was born out of wedlock. He broke Sabbath laws. He associated with sinners. He dined with the unclean. He touched the lepers. He called the least of these his own body. And he forgave the very enemies who were crucifying him. Jesus' entire life was an act of bringing in those who were out. Of erasing those lines. The early church, the whole story of Acts is the early church trying desperately to figure out how to catch up to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Because all the Holy Spirit does in, in, in Acts is violate every boundary they come up with. I mean, you even get to like uh, Acts 15 where the, the church in Jerusalem finally gets together and goes, okay, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's not really listening to us anymore. He's kind of doing his own thing. So what are the rules now? And they come up with a new list of rules. Like, well, you, you know, don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. You don't have to be circumcised, but you can't do these things. And they come up with a new list. And then you never hear that list again in the rest of Acts because this Holy Spirit just does whatever it wants, right? They keep trying to redraw the circle, and <laughs> it never sticks. The letters of the New Testament, like Ephesians, are constantly trying to convince these early churches to center themselves, to get rid of the lines that they are trying to draw. And the image we have at the end of the New Testament is of a banquet table where all the different folks are present together. It is at the center of who we are and what we're called to do. I was brought up to believe that in some ways Christianity was an escape plan from this earth that God wanted to destroy because it was so bad. I was just here to get my ticket out. That does not even resemble what Christ taught or how Christ lived or what we see, especially in the New Testament. It doesn't even resemble it. Us learning how to love each other is the gospel. It's not a side project. It's part of it. And recently, particularly, and this may, you may not even know about this. It may just be like the social media that I follow and stuff as like a pastoral nerd. But in, in, in some circles, it's become very cool theologically to talk about how anything that might resemble, um, you know, doing social work in this world or trying to, you know, uh, achieve social justice has somehow become a bad word. Social justice, because God forbid that would happen. Um, that it's all this distraction from what God is really here to do, which is save souls. And frankly, I don't see how anyone could reasonably read the scriptures and even pretend to believe that. The Bible has everything to do with how we treat one another. Everything to do with the implications of grace and being centered on Christ. It has everything to do with those who call themselves followers of God, chosen by grace to tear down every wall, every system, every obstacle that we've put up in between each other. We're intended to address poverty, racial justice, whatever that is. That is the gospel manifest in the world. We are to be a place here and now that draws everyone to the center in love. The gospel is not some grand escape plan. It's a redemption plan. It's a reconciliation plan. It's meant to change the world now to accomplish God's will on earth as it is in heaven, like we pray every week. So the question for us is, are we centered or are we bound up? Because to truly believe in God's grace is to reject the boundaries we have built, even the really holy looking ones, which are the most fun. To reject the boundaries we have built and to center ourselves on the unconditional love of God. 
It is why we can say every week that whoever you are, you are welcome here and mean it. It's why we can remind you that no matter where you're coming from or what's going on in your life or has gone on in your life, there is space for you at the table. Because there are no walls in the kingdom of God. And we do not exist to man whatever gates or fences we have put up. We exist to embody God's grace and to throw open the doors and to point each other towards the unbounded love of God. Let's pray.